This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. This week, Libya on the brink. Chased them, disarmed them. The punishment is Suffering and bloodshed is outrageous and it is unacceptable. This violence must stop. Stranded Britons airlifted out. Hundreds of British people have been leaving HMS Cumberland, heading towards Benghazi to help people there. BFBS. Headlines. David Cameron's apologising for the delays in getting British nationals out of Libya. Flights have now left Tripoli and a Royal Navy ship has docked in the eastern city of Benghazi. Libyan state TV, meanwhile, has broadcast another message from Colonel Gaddafi in which he calls on people to shun the insurrection against him. The uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa have pushed up the price of oil. Brent crude reached almost $120 a barrel earlier. It could put 5p on a litre of petrol. A judge has ruled the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should be extradited to Sweden. He's wanted there over allegations of sexual assault. He's promising to appeal today's decision. The Foreign Office has confirmed two British people died in the earthquake this week in New Zealand. So far, 98 people are known to have died and more than 200 are still missing. And Russia has announced a big boost to its military budget. It'll spend $650 billion re-equipping its armed forces in the next decade. It plans to buy 600 new warplanes and 1,000 new helicopters. Muammar Gaddafi has ruled Libya for more than 40 years, but this week his control of the country buckled and his response was ferocious. A woman went looking out of the balcony of her house. They shot her dead looking out of the balcony. She wasn't shouting, she wasn't even protesting, just looking out in the balcony. They shot her dead. These are not humans, these are gorillas. Determined to cling on to power and resist the revolutionary fervour across the region, his troops fired on protesters. He's called cockroaches. Hundreds are thought to have died and Gaddafi's warned the violence will continue unless protesters back down. Uh, would you like America to come and occupy you like Afghanistan and Somalia, like Pakistan and Iraq? Is that what you want? If that's what you want, if you don't, go to the street, take the street. Chased them, disarmed them. The death penalty will, will be applied to all those who cooperate with foreign states. Attacking the constitution, the punishment is death. But around the world, many senior Libyan diplomats have deserted him and President Obama's leading condemnation of the suppression of protesters. The suffering and bloodshed is outrageous and it is unacceptable. So are threats and orders to shoot peaceful protesters and further punish the people of Libya. These actions violate international norms and every standard of common decency. This violence must stop. 
It's just 10 weeks since a Tunisian man set himself on fire, triggering an uprising that spread across much of the Arab world. Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here. Uh, Christopher, hi. Gaddafi mm. said he'll fight to the death to try and stay in power, but he's already lost much of the country, hasn't he? He certainly lost, as, as far as we understand, he certainly lost the eastern part of, uh, of Libya. And the general opinion is that he is drawing back or falling back on... Uh, the capital, Tripoli. Outside of that, there are three things to consider. One uh, is the state of his uh, his own army. And I don't mean the army, the general uh, Libyan army. The general Libyan army are not that loyal to him, never have been. Uh, he's always kept them under his thumb, paid them badly, not given them very much equipment because he didn't want them to be able mm. to form into a group that might take over from him. It's, it's the foreigners talk about, the people he's hired in. It's partly the mercenaries, but partly also he's got this, um, he's got this uh, Revolutionary Guard Council, and they're the important ones. They virtually run the country, but they protect him, apart from his, uh, his, his Amazon uh, bodyguard system. But there's something else going on, um, and that is that Although we look and say, well, there's not much activity in Washington, other places, a lot of people are gathering together at the moment and they're trying to work out how they get rid of Gaddafi and how they persuade some of his people to take him out. Now, if you haven't got a strong army, like, say, Egypt, where Egypt went to the president and said, Mr. President, it is time to step down and we can control the matrix of the security and the country. There isn't that system in uh, in in uh, Libya, but there's one other thing. Just supposing you're in Washington in the State Department, and you're asking these questions at the moment. How do we get to him? How do we get to his people? How do we persuade his people to say, uh, "Come on, let's get you out of here, and you can give your speeches from where else"? How do we get an agreement on how much money he takes with him? How much do we get an agreement with somebody else who will actually take him on board? The Saudis don't want him. Well, Nobody he's a pariah wants around him. the world now. He isn't is. He? The only person he's likely to have a, a close relationship with is probably uh, President Chavez. In, in South America. But he's going to go in a couple of years' time, then what happens to him? So actively, people are trying to find a way out that they can get him out without causing him to let loose the goons to wipe out as many of the population to say, when he says, you know, I will fight to the death, he actually mm. is a fear that he actually means their death, not, not particularly his. Well, Jane Kinnamont is an expert on North Africa and the Middle East at Chatham House, a leading organisation on international affairs. Uh, Jane, thanks for your time today. Um, how far do you think Gaddafi will go when he says fighting to the death? How do, how do you interpret that? Well, I think he might very well mean it. There's certainly been no indication that he's planning to do anything otherwise. But we should also remember that President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt also said that he would not leave power and that he would die on Egyptian soil. However, he wasn't uh, ultimately given the option because the, the army ultimately decided uh, not to back him. Uh, so I think really the question in Libya is whether Gaddafi actually has got enough power to fight to the death. Well, there has been criticism on the rescue operation to get British nationals out of Libya. The Prime Minister's admitted things could have been better organised. There is nothing more important than getting these people home. They are our citizens, our nationals. We're doing everything we can to get them home. Two flights have taken off from Tripoli, full of British uh, citizens. Currently, as we speak, carrying out a sweep of the airport to make sure there are no other British nationals there who we need to take home. 
Uh, Christopher, on the rescue operation, HMS Cumberland's on the way, or pretty much there. An RAF C-130 Hercules transporter has been sent. Uh, even talk of special forces getting involved. Uh, how do you deal with this kind of situation? How do you deplo- deploy forces? Well, like you've, got a, you, you've got a logistical problem right at the beginning, but you have a unit which sits partly Foreign Office, partly in the Ministry of Defence, partly uh, Special Forces, um, and they say, OK, we've got a problem, not simply in, um, in, in Libya, but we've got problems anywhere. How do we go in and get people out? And this is, goes back to 1978-79, when they had to come up with a similar sort of situation. How do we get people out of Kolwezi, which was the big crisis then? You've got problems. One, uh, if you're going to take an aircraft, a charter an aircraft, do you charter two aircraft in case the first one goes wrong? Uh, that has failed on this time. Who takes the decision? You've got uh, the Prime Minister is out of the country and it's very difficult to get hold of him, get a decision out of him. The, the Foreign Secretary hasn't really got a grip uh, of his whole uh, organisation yet. But it is a big logistical thing. And do you send in special forces? Well, we probably... There are special forces it, in the area anyway. What would they be doing there exactly? They'll be... Doing recce, uh, complete reconnaissance and say, OK, one of the important things, if you want to go in and pick up people, you don't simply go and pick them up. You've got to know where they are. You've got to know in what state they're in. You've got to know how they're protected. And once you can actually get to them, you may be able to get to them as a small force, but your job there is only probably to say, look, this way, please, and we will protect you. How do you actually get them out? The the crucial thing is, have they moved? Let's suppose you've got five installations where you've got, (coughs) sorry, excuse me, expats working. Mm. Have they all moved or been moved to one? How are you sure of that? When communications are down, when communications are not good, you've got to know where you're actually going. And when you go, you've got to say, right, we're all out now, but where are we going to? And how do we get them out? And one of the other problems, when the the British are accused of being a bit sort of reluctant to go in there sort of straight away, um, they are very careful to say, if we go in, is there anything that we might do which would cause a further bloodbath or even put the the expats, their lives in jeopardy. Indeed. That's the British understanding, and that's they've always done it that way. Very tense situation, obviously developing all the time. Uh, Jane, how much further do you see these protests spreading in the region? Well, there have now been protests in almost every single Arab country. Um, every country, of course, is different. So they won't necessarily succeed everywhere. Much will depend on how the government responds, uh, whether they try to reform or whether they simply try a heavy-handed crackdown. Uh, some, of course, are trying to essentially buy people off. We saw Saudi Arabia announce a $36 billion package of new public spending yesterday, which does seem to be a direct response to the unrest in the region. Uh, I would say that the next most at risk are Yemen, Sudan and Algeria in that order. Uh, Yemen in particular is already confronting uh, three insurgencies and on top of that now seeing the opposition in the capital being reinvigorated. They have some very serious problems to face. All right, Jane Kinnamont, there we must leave it. Jane Kinnamont from Chatham House, thanks for your time. Well, the Prime Minister visited Egypt earlier this week, the first foreign leader in the country since the fall of Hosni Mubarak. But Mr Cameron's delegation included defence contractors, some of whom have in the past sold equipment to Libya. Oliver Miles is a former British ambassador there. I was responsible for advising on arms sales to Libya a long time ago, back in the 1980s. I was asked whether we should issue a licence to a company to 
sell tank transporters to Libya. Well, of course, tank transporters are not lethal equipment, they don't go bang, but on the other hand, they are essential if you're carrying out major aggression against another country. I recommended that we should not sell them. That recommendation was agreed by the government, and the result was that the Americans sold what were called agricultural machinery transporters, which were identical with tank transporters. Uh, Christopher, uh, defence deals with Libya were worth almost £30 million in 2009. The Prime Minister says we have some of the toughest rules on arms sales anywhere in the world. Uh, they don't seem to be working very well, do they? Well, they work well as far as the defence contractors are concerned. Um, and I remember Oliver Miles talking about the agricultural equipment uh, as the guys. I remember also in that package were Land Rovers. And people said, oh, it's only selling Land Rovers. I mean, the next thing, Land Rovers are, are, are painted khaki and up in smart formation and transport and security forces. So does a, a clear old Land Rover become a military, uh, a military piece of equipment? We have got, on that Prime Minister's trip at the moment, some like 2022 arms salesmen. I think it's an indelicate time to do it. But you've only got to look at the state of British industry, the arms industry. We're about number four or five in the world of arms salesmen at the moment. It is crucial to anybody's economy. It is also a fact... So is the argument correct, then, that you, you, you give the contracts but you revoke them if the government of that country actually proves to be carrying them out against Which is what launching just, attacks against yeah, their own people? Yeah, last year, uh, there were all sorts of things... Is it a valid things, argument? Yeah, last year, there were all sorts of things like that going on. We did not revoke a single contract last year. We've actually, How many should have been revoked, do you uh, think? My mind, twenty-three, but 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 then you know, but 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 but, but at the moment we've just revoked contracts on Bahrain, after the way that the protesters were treated there. I would tell you we didn't revoke contracts on two Type forty-two destroyers. They went to Argentina, and a year later they were fighting against us in the Falklands, and we actually taught them as part of the contract how to use those Type forty-two destroyers. Sit rep with Still to come this week, a big step forward for the Afghan National Army. They are far more advanced than we thought they would be. They have an ability to plan. It's a question of, of sort of training them, advising them how they can achieve their roles and responsibilities. The Ministry of Defence's continued failure to sort out its finances is putting lives at risk, according to a powerful committee of MPs. The Commons Public Accounts Committee says the MOD is trapped in a cycle of failure. It gives examples of the cost of the typhoon project rising by more than £2.5 billion pounds last financial year, while the aircraft carriers went up by more than half a billion. It also says £5 billion pounds was wasted by scrapping the Nimrods and ending the Sentinel programme decades earlier. Margaret Hodge, who chairs the committee, says such decisions have increased operational risks. This is a litany of failure, uh, which I think lets down the taxpayer, wastes taxpayers' money, lets down our troops in the front line, because they're not necessarily getting the equipment they need. That's why I get so angry, because this terrible, terrible waste of money doesn't just impact on the taxpayer doesn't just impact on other public services like health and education, but does mean that our troops at the front line can't be reassured that in the back room they're doing all they can to make sure they have the equipment they need. In response, the Defence Secretary warned the defence industry it has to change and announced new rules inside the MOD for procurement. I've uh, asked the new uh, Chief of Defence Material in the MOD to ensure that no projects begin unless we're sure that there's a budget for development 
and then procurement and deployment because otherwise we end up with fantasy projects which are, are not much more than a wish list. That has to stop. Our reporter James Hurst was at the Defence Secretary's speech and he's joined us in the studio. Uh, James, hi. Uh, we already know there's a huge black hole in the MOD's accounts. Have we learned anything new from this report? Uh, to be awkward, yes and no. That financial year where the typhoon and the um, also the aircraft carriers they reported on, the Bernard Gray report came in the middle of that, so we know they continued to go up, but I think it illustrates just how difficult the, these legacy projects are to turn round. It was also a salutary reminder that in all the political debate about cuts, everybody's getting the finger pointed at them here, not only the politicians, the civil servants inside the MOD, fingers pointed at the, the generals, the, the top brass, the military in the MOD, for competing and for not necessarily being realistic enough. And also, as you mentioned, the defence industry, and you know, Liam Fox had some pretty hard words for them. Mm, and the MOD's also looking at this uh, a billion pounds in savings over the next few weeks, so there's been more speculation this week about what else might be cut, what's behind all that. I mean, yeah, as you say, speculation, that is what the MOD calls it, it calls it unhelpful speculation. You saw that there was the report that the RAF may lose all its tornadoes in three years. The army may be cut by 20,000 in 2015. The impression I get, reading between the lines both of those reports and, and the way uh, Liam Fox phrases his response to it, is there are nothing is ruled out, but nothing has actually been planned. They are discussing ideas because they know they have more money to save, not only in the coming financial year, but much further ahead beyond that as well. All right, James Hurst, thanks very much. Well, earlier I spoke to Admiral Lord West, who was Security Minister in the last Labour government. I started by asking him whether he realised at the time procurement at the MOD was out of control. I wouldn't describe it as an understanding that it was out of control. I think that one was very aware that there were major problems, um, which uh, some of them were systemic, and they were very long-standing. It was quite clear that what were known as the sort of legacy projects, things like the Typhoon program that started way back in the uh, early 90s, uh, if not before that, actually, um, and things like the, the astute class nuclear submarine program, which uh, well, they were ordered just before the Conservative Guard, uh, Party left, that those programs were on a very bad basis. It was very bad value for the taxpayer, and sort of almost open-ended commitments. One was aware of all of those problems. One was aware of a lot of work going on to try and make it better. And did you feel that there were ways and means that you could make your concerns felt? And did you do anything? From the sidelines, I sort of suggested things to the odd person, but really had very little influence. When I was in the Ministry of Defence, I think one of the problems is I don't believe the chiefs of staff, um, although people think maybe they've got too much power, they've got too little power when it comes to procurement. In light of the unfolding events in Libya, we've seen the military, including the Royal Navy, uh, potentially called upon to rescue Britons. Do you think there is a case now to reopen the defence review? I'm always very lo loath to completely reopen something. I think, I think, though, one can address decisions that one thinks are clearly maybe not, not the best decisions. And I would have almost certainly moved one of the landing ship dock auxiliaries, which are Royal Fleet auxiliaries, the day that things started happening in the Middle East, I'd have moved one to the Med as a, just a precaution. As it is, we grabbed a returning Type 22 frigate coming back from fighting pirates in the Indian Ocean. And, of course, that's one of the ships that's being scrapped. I mean, it's going back to be got rid of. I think it's been very short-sighted with the government, bearing in mind the, the national security strategy and the, the speeches by uh, William Hague on uh, foreign policy, 
all absolutely stress how important global stability is to us, how many millions of British people there are all around the world working and doing things, how we are the largest European investor in most parts of the world. Well, if you've got all those things, you need, you need a global capability to look after your people from the lowest end of the spectrum, you know, when there's an earthquake or floods and things, through withdrawing them from a country if that needs be, through maybe having to support allies and fight and things. Lord West speaking to me earlier. This is SITREP on BFBS. Around 1,300 troops took part in an operation this week in Afghanistan designed to push the Taliban out of a part of Helmand province. But almost two-thirds were from the Afghan National Army, who led Operation Obid Shash, with troops from the Irish Guards and two para there to advise them. The soldiers moved into a part of Nara Siraj, which hasn't seen ISAF forces for many months. Our reporter Jeff Mead was with them, and he joins us now from Afghanistan. Uh, Jeff, significant that Afghan forces took the leading role in this operation. Very much so. This is a real change, Kate, from what I've seen over here in the past years, where nominally Afghan forces have always been part of combined operations, but their role up until now uh, has tended to be rather marginal. They've been a sort of an add-on company, even an add-on platoon, uh, to a much uh, larger uh, ISAF contingent. Uh, But as you said, this time those proportions are reversed. There were something like uh, 800 uh, ANA troops involved in Operation Omid Shash, uh, Hope 6, and uh, of only 500 foreign forces. Um, The difference also, not just in numbers, was in the way that they were left to get on with it. This was a totally Afghan-planned, conceived and led operation. Senior British commanders uh, wanted the Afghans to do this themselves and, in a sense, risk learning from mistakes. The only way in which the British, when we were with them, uh, said they would get involved would be if the mission was put at risk or lives lives put at risk. Other than that, the Afghans were left to get on with it. Each level, right down the chain of command, had a mirror. So uh, at every level, the Afghan's uh, officer would have a British uh, counterpart to act as as his advisor. And from the Irish Guards, Major Rob Money was in charge of that system. They are far more advanced than we thought they would be, or certainly I thought they would be prior to coming in, in that they have an ability to plan. They have people in the, in the, in the key jobs. It's just a, it, it's a question of, of sort of training them, advising them, um, as to, as to how, how they can achieve their, their, their various roles and responsibilities. So, Jeff, the British mentors were impressed with the Afghan forces, and that's a central part of the eventual switch from foreign to Afghan control. Yes, of course, the timeline is already there for all to see. Uh, British and other foreign uh, combat uh, missions uh, come to an end in 2014, three years away. So although um, there might be some concerns, misgivings about the way the Afghans uh, go about the business of soldiering, they are certainly brave. Uh, Perhaps at times that leads to impetuosity and a certain boredom with the uh, less glamorous uh, aspects of warfare like the whole supply chain. Let me give you a very quick example. Um, I saw the uh, uh, Afghan troops uh, working with ISAF to clear a a, a route which had not been cleared of suspected mines and IEDs. Now, the British vehicles got bogged down simply because there had been heavy overnight rain, the terrain was not suitable for these 20, 30-ton mastiffs. Now, the Afghans were brave and willing to go ahead just to sweep the path with whatever equipment they could carry. The Brits said, fine, you can do that if that's your decision. But bear in mind, you need to get resupplied. How are you going to supply these troops 
if you break through into the Taliban-dominated zone, we might not be able to get helicopters in, we certainly can't get vehicles in, and prudence prevailed in the end. But one of the big advantages which the uh, Afghan forces have over, over foreign armies is, of course, their ability to move much more freely within and as part of the local community. And that was explained uh, to me very clearly by the CO of the 1st Battalion, the Irish Guards, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Geeker. Although the army have now proved that they have complete freedom of movement, the Afghan army have freedom of movement amongst their people. Um, They're not um, put off by the insurgents, and it's important that the people see they have freedom of movement. What is possibly more important uh, is that they see that the local civilian leadership, in other words, the district governor and his chief of police, uh, also have um, freedom of movement. Uh, Chris, are you heartened by what we've seen with Omid Shash this week? Yeah, very heartened indeed. Uh, But let's not... We're not getting carried away with it, I know, and certainly the, the, uh, the mentors, nor is the Afghan army getting carried away. Um, we talked last week, for example, about the weather. If you go and talk to some of the people, for example, with 101st Airborne, the American Airborne, they're talking now about the weather changing, the spring offensive. Uh, there's a big thing at the moment about a lot of the of Taliban saying to their leaders, you come back from Pakistan where you're resting up, hiding. We need you back here in Afghanistan uh, to do the fighting. We've lost a lot of our middle management leaders, and that is bad news, but we need you back. Mullah Omar, who runs Taliban, has, has built out broadcasts and, and on the website, say, come back and help with the fighting. Come back at a time when spring comes along. It is almost the fighting season in sort of Victorian terms. Lots of foliage, lots of cover. The whole tempo always changes within the next few weeks. And, Jeff, are you getting a sense of that on the ground at the moment, that, that people are really preparing for a major onslaught? Very much so. I mean, Christopher's right. You know, this is we, we should not get over optimistic or, or believe that any great line has been crossed with Omid Shash. Um, everybody expects there will be a Taliban retaliation. Uh, as, as you say, Christopher, the fighting season, as it's called here, is virtually upon us. And some of those three villages, which in a sense were liberated from the Taliban in Omid Shash, uh, these are areas, remember, where the last British troops in there were the Royal Anglians nearly three years ago. Well, there was some anger I saw expressed towards General Sharon Shah, the ANA brigade commander, uh, villagers were saying to him, you're here now, but when you've gone, the Taliban will come back, they'll take retaliation. What are the guarantees you can give us that this level of protection would, would continue? Answer, no guarantees. We hope to put a police checkpoint in place, but it wasn't there when we left. All right, Jeff Mead in Afghanistan. Thank you very much. week was a week that said a very big thank you to the crews of HMS Gannett after a man who miraculously survived a 1,000-foot fall in the Scottish mountains paid a visit to the search and rescue team that saved him. The crews that helped Adam Potter are on standby 24 hours a day. They cover 98,000 square miles of land and sea. And as Charlotte Cross reports, they also include a Royal Navy record breaker. Petty Officer Marcus Wigfall, known as Wiggy, has just become the most experienced Royal Navy search and rescue air crewman with 800 call-outs under his belt. It's a four-man crew and my job is uh, as winchman paramedic in the in the back of the aircraft so I'm the first normally the first person to be put down to a casualty and then stabilize them on the ground and then recover to the aircraft. Three Royal Navy Sea King helicopters operate at HMS Gannett. Pilot Lieutenant Will Murray says they can cope with most situations but the unpredictable weather is their worst fear when flying to a rescue. Generally we'll, uh, we'll look at certain aspects for example cloud. We can go into some types of cloud on some occasions but a lot of the time we can't. 
Um, we have the uh, mountain rescue team who we'll meet up with and we'll generally drop them at the base of the cloud if we can't go in and they'll have to go and get the casualty and then we'll wait and take the casualty when it's brought back to us. It can also be difficult to land in Scotland's mountainous terrain where many of the rescues take place. As a paramedic, Wiggy's job often involves using a winch to lower himself down to a casualty while the helicopter hovers overhead. Careful communication with the pilot is key. I sat about 15 feet in front of us, um, so when we get right over the top of a casualty, they can't see the actual the casualty themselves. Um, so we have to give that fine voice marshalling uh, just to get them in the position uh, which is suitable for winching to avoid anybody being swung into the cliffs or into the sea. Last year, HMS Gannett was the UK's busiest search and rescue unit for the fourth year in a row with nearly 400 call-outs. 324 people were rescued. Charlotte Cross reporting. Uh, Christopher, we've heard about the dedication of Wiggy there in that report. So the possible, whenever it does, if it does happen, privatisation of the search and rescue service. Um, is it fair to say, though, uh, you do get better rescues, more value for your money from the forces because they'll go that extra mile They've been there. They're not scared. They'll go out when, it's, when other crews wouldn't. Yeah, we're not quite sure yet because we haven't really seen a commercial organisation running it. But the situation is, I tell you, if I had to be rescued, I'd want the Navy or the Air Force to come and get me. Um, the most important thing is you know you've got the dedication of aircraft maintenance, that you, they work as a team all the time. And also, they are used to flying in the most adverse conditions. Now, if you're going to get pilots, for example, or air crew in to do a commercial operation, chances are, of course, you'll get them as ex-service people in. And so they have those same conditions. But the services, traditionally, they'll go. When other people might not go. And, and that's might the not whole thing. perhaps respect the health and safety rules by the letter as, a, as a, perhaps a commercial operation might have to. Well, I don't know if uh, health and safety comes in, in, into it too much, but uh, you know, they know how to do it. And it's not a question of being better in you know, a, a better mindset. It is a question of working as a team. There's something strange about the services which commercial people don't understand, even if they've got ex-service people working together, because the ex-service people tend to go home every night and they have the other pressures. Service people working as a team, it is a remarkable example of exactly that teamwork. And it exists in a service environment, which I've never seen it in any other environment. Which is what exactly? Other than other than for perhaps the fire service. It's that ability to actually instinctively say, yes, this is how we do things, and this is how we do things the best. And that sounds like a big plug for recruitment, and it's not the best time of the year to be doing it's that. A good, it's a good note to leave it on, though. Christopher, thanks very much for your time. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week. Thanks very much. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.